five cranes, I think, five cranes, about 10 205s and Hueys. We had a Cobra doing the infrared mapping, and then we had, I was flying a Long Ranger, and we had an A-Star as well. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we get to travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes to search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Another long interview today, folks, so let's crack straight in. Gordy Cox is Director of Operations for Reading Air Service and Island Express Helicopters, which are both based in California in the United States. He has, at one point or another, had a go at most uh, helicopter utility operations that you can think of and held a chief pilot and chief instructor positions as well. He's rated on most of the machines that you'd find in the U.S. utility fleet. And I had to look one up, though. He's got listed down there a Fairchild Hillier 1100, which apparently was a, a competitor for the U.S. Army scout helicopters against the Bell 206 and the Hughes OH-6, but uh, not many left around these days. Look, along the way, Gordy spent a lot of his time operating helicopters on fires and still does throughout the U.S., and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So by the end of the episode, you're going to have a pretty good starting point into what the firefighting side of the industry is like. And also, I reckon, a you know, starting to get an appreciation of the level of depth and experience that goes into it. Gordy Cox, thank you so much for, for joining us and giving some time for the Rotary Wing Show. And uh, where, where are you in the world at the moment? Uh, right now, I'm sitting in Salt Lake City, Utah, pretty much. That's, I live here and then... Uh, I work pretty much all over the country, so this makes it easy. It's just central, and I can just jump on a plane and, and go out and pick up the aircraft or do relief wherever I need to from, from here. All right, and if we let's most of the day we're going to be talking about, uh, I guess, firefighting and, and trying to uh, tap your brain and get as much info as we can out uh, about firefighting ops for helicopters. But uh, let's rewind right back, and, and how did you get started in helicopters? Like, do you want to just quickly talk about growing up in Ghana and, and how you got into um, the RAF initially? Yes, pretty much. Uh, my parents uh, were both in, both in the British Air Force. Then back in the early 60s, they ended up... Uh, uh, my mother had to leave the Air Force. My father got seconded to a joint expeditionary force. It was uh, the American, no, the Canadians and the Brits out in Ghana. So they went out there. Of course, I arrived on the scene out there. I was one of two white babies born in Ghana in 1963. Um, I left when I was two years old, so I really don't remember it. Although I do have Ghanaian nationality, which I've since relinquished to become a U.S. citizen. But uh, I call myself an African-American these days, just for the fun of it. Yep. Uh, then I went to boarding school. My parents continued to, to travel in the Air Force. I went to boarding school in England. Uh, then I joined the British Air Force back in 1982 uh, as an air electronics operator. So I, I basically flew in the backseat, ended up uh, flying on Nimrod, anti-submarine warfare airplanes. Uh, did that for eight years, chasing Russian submarines right at the... Well, towards the end of the Cold War, I really didn't blend with the whole military scene. So I left in 1989, moved over to San Francisco Bay Area, 
and trained with Helicopter Adventures, which is now it was bought out by Bristow, so it's now Bristow Academy. I stayed on with them for eight years. I basically helped them build up all their training programs. Um, when I first got there, there was only four instructors. When I left, we were up to about 50. Uh, so, so, so you went straight from growth. so you went straight to your, your CPL then into instructing. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, basically, because of my Air Force background, I had a lot of knowledge of the aviation system and what I call just general airmanship, which uh, I believe is sadly lacking these days in in pilots coming out of flight school. But just general airmanship. So I moved up the ladder pretty quickly. Within uh, about three to five months, I was assistant chief instructor, then chief instructor within within 12 months, and then we, we expanded. We were just doing basic instruction at the time in Robinson's. Then we expanded to include external load training, crop spraying training, mountain training, and, and just helped build the school. So that, that's how I got my first start. Uh, the first forestry work I did was back in 1992. I actually did some hay bombing on uh, the Wainema National Forest up in Oregon. Did it with a Robinson R-22. For those people who say you can't work work an R-22 commercially, you can. I lifted basically 200 pounds of hay bales in each load in, in a net and dropped them on the side of a hill for erosion control after a forest fire. So I moved. I did that for a whole week. That was my first uh, intro into firefighting or, or firefighting operations. Um, that was about it. Stayed with Helicopter Adventures through 97, 98. Uh, in the meantime, we had added and expanded the fleet. We had a 407, which we were flying for a sheriff department. So I worked for them for a year and a half as a as a contract pilot, but contracted through Helicopter Adventures. Ultimately then I, I moved out to Hawaii, flew in Hawaii for seven years, amassed a whole bunch of, of flight time, although really it was one hour, but many times over, just flying around in a circle in an A-star. Then came back to Helicopter Adventures, who had since moved to Florida. In Florida, they were basically trying to trying to keep the same program as we had in California. I was hired a director of operations to try and help get into the expand some of the commercial work that they were doing. Hurricane Katrina hit, but they didn't want any of the aircraft to leave the state of Florida. So ultimately, I parted with them again. Was uh, hired uh, by an old friend actually who had just purchased Reading Air Service up in Northern California uh, doing fire operations. And so I was hired as chief pilot there and been there ever since, and that's where I find myself today. Wow, so you had a pretty long association then with um, Helicopter Adventures and, and the, the mobs you were working for. You were kind of fairly consistent. Yep, I did. Uh, in, in total, I did uh, nine years. That was all uh, under uh, Patrick Corr, when uh, Patrick Corr had Helicopter Adventures. Ultimately, he sold it uh, a couple of years after I left. I left in 2005 for the second time, and he sold it to Bristow, uh, the Bristow Group, and it's now Bristow Academy. All right. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I see some of this stuff floating around the web. And I saw some reference there that um, you, you did the. You really got into the Hawaiian lifestyle. So it was basically Hawaiian shirts, <laughs> barefoot flying, and uh, yeah, yep. Um, basically, what what happened there was, you know, flight working at helicopter adventures. It can it basically the stress level got too much, and so I moved out to Hawaii and just wanted to be a long pilot. I didn't want to have any responsibility whatsoever. And so when I first got out there, I, I 
didn't have a pair of shoes. I just didn't bother getting any. I, I just wore flip-flops, Hawaiian shirt. And believe it or not, you actually learn to fly the aircraft uh, with real precise control. Uh, when, when you fly barefoot, most people sit there and, and push on both pedals. That's why most pilots have a bad back, is because you apply a force with each pedal. When you do that barefoot, it hurts your feet, and so you end up uh, just moving the controls r- real gently. And you, you learn to feel the aircraft more than just fly it. And it, I know it sounds corny and people will laugh, but it, it gets to the point where you actually wear the aircraft and it becomes an extension of your body. And you can actually feel feel the wind. Every aircraft has a slight character. And so it just makes the flying a lot more enjoyable at that point. Awesome. Yeah, no, I've always, you know, always flying in basically big, thick boots. So <laughs> my control touch there is, yeah, through boots. And uh, definitely as soon as I get busy or stressed or anything like that, um, that's the thing is you, you start pushing on both legs. Yep. And of course, now back in fire, we have to wear boots. And But the, you know, the, the experience of flying barefoot did, did teach me to not push with most feet. So it's slightly different now, a little better. Okay, let's talk about uh, history of firefighting then. Do you know when helicopters were first used? What was the? Is there any stories about that? Pretty much, they they've been they were used back in the the fifties is when they really first started using them on mass. And what's interesting is I have a picture at Reading Air Service of the founder of Reading Air Service, Bert Train, in nineteen fifty seven, flying a Bell forty seven at Reading Airport with one of the first buckets doing trials and they have the collection cups laid out on the airport and whenever you do trials you you fly along with a bucket drop the water and they try and capture the water in the cups to determine the spread and the swath width so we have a picture so reading air service was right at the forefront of firefighting operations certainly in northern california there were other places in the country that were doing it as well but uh I, I don't know any of their history, but it, it was in the mid-50s when it first started, mostly with more detection and, and airborne control and then getting into the actual firefighting. Obviously, from there, they developed delivery systems, so not only uh, buckets, but people so doing repel operations. And certainly in Northern California, there's a lot of areas where uh, you just can't land. And to, to, get, to get boots on the ground you have to repel people in. It's pretty much the only way. You see much of the, you know, the smoke jumpers doing the parachuting in and things like that. Is that still a big deal or is helicopters sort of taken over dropping people in? It really depends. The smoke jumpers, and we, and we work heavily with the smoke jumpers as well. There's, there's, to a certain extent, there is a rivalry between the two. Typically, when the smoke jumpers come out, they'll shut down the airspace for 20 to 30 minutes while they do 20 or 30 passes and eventually just to throw out 10 guys out on a fire. It takes them, takes them a, a, an amount of time to do that. Oftentimes, we can actually land there as well. What, what the smoke jumpers are good for is they have bases which will have 30 jumpers. So Redding has a smoke jumper base. They have 30 highly qualified firefighters sitting right there, all jump qualified. So when we get multiple lightning strikes, we can call for additional resources, and they have 30 people sitting right there that they can fly out. And certainly in Idaho, um, we use them a lot. If it's towards the end of the day, if we have lightning storms go through, and we'll have 10 or 15 fires on the forest that we we just can't get to. We just run out of personnel on the forest to staff them. So we'll call for um, 10 smoke jumpers, and they'll actually jump into a field. 
um, just because it's quicker. And then we'll pick them up with a helicopter and fly them to each of the each of the fires that we want them to work. So it's, the the smoke jump program is is a good way of getting boots on the ground fast that we when we've run out of resources. Uh, certainly in Montana, they also use they they are used and actually nationwide they use for initial attack as well. But uh, typically, most times when I've worked with them, they've jumped the field and I've flown them in from that point. It just strikes me as one of those you know, crazy, unique jobs. If you went back 100 years and tried to say, okay, this is going to be someone's uh, job, it'd just be you know, impossible to, to kind of describe. Oh, I know. And, and even today, with all the OSHA requirements, just you know, health and safety at work, and you know, I'm surprised they've not got them in orange vests and, and, and even allowing them to jump these days. But uh, certainly their training is, they are some of the, the fittest firefighters out there. Their training program is, is very extensive. Their fitness requirements are unreal. But they, they, and they really are the elite. Between them and Helitech, they're, they're probably some of the most highly trained firefighters in, in certainly in the West Coast of the U.S. All right, there's so many different ways where I guess we get at um, approach this, but if we how we started off with a just a daily routine on a on a large fire site, how does it work from a aircrew perspective? Well, typically we have and, and there's kind of two real ways of doing it. We have large fire support, and then we have just a standard explosive use contract. Both of them are are different. So if we start out with just a a standard explosive use contract. So, for example, I use I use uh, Pocatello, the Caribou Tagi Forest, only because I was I was there for five years, so I know I know the forest in and out. Typically, we we have two helicopters based on that forest. One is uh, on the northern northern part of the forest. The other one is on the southern half of the forest. And just like a fire station, any other fire station in the country or town, we're staffed during daylight or during set hours. So and we're staffed during fire season. So the Forest Service looks at it and says, between these two dates, we have a high probability of fire. So therefore, we're going to have a helicopter on contract between June 1st and September 30th, for example. So we, we set up, we go in with the helicopter, and we're based there. Um, the helicopter is at the government's back and call 24-7. Uh, the, the pilot comes in uh, in the morning along with the rest of the crew. So we'll have 10 firefighters, a pilot, and then a fuel support vehicle, which is either a mechanic or just a fuel truck driver. Typically, we come in at 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, the first 10 minutes, we just see if there's any planned missions or if there are any fires that we need to respond to. If there's nothing, then we go into doing uh, PT, physical training. Uh, every day of the week is something different, uh, ranging from doing circuits to a a hike up a hill with your pack, or even, we even do yoga. Sundays is yoga day, so it's a little more mellow. Uh, once we've completed that, then we, we wash up and then we do group breakfast. So we just sit around a big conference table, we all uh, eat breakfast together, and then we'll, uh, we have uh, daily things which we need to read. For example, we have six minutes for safety, which is a nationwide program. So every fire crew in the whole country does the same six minutes. And they pick a subject and they have some, some pointed questions that will be asked of the group. And it'll just get us all talking about safety. And it could be, let's say, helicopter direct bucket drop directing. And so everybody will talk about directing buckets from a helicopter. Uh, we then look at the weather, so we'll read the weather. Um, 
and then we'll check in with uh, dispatch um, to say that we've had the weather, we're briefed, and then how many people we have on the crew. Then typically in the morning we'll either be uh, we'll do project work, which could be cleaning tools, prepping them ready to go out on the next fire. Certainly if we came in late the night before, we'll be cleaning up tools. It uh, could be that we're doing training. We may go out and just install the litter kit on the aircraft for training. Um, there's always projects ar- around, the, around the firehouse that need to be done. Uh, we, then we'll have lunch. In the afternoon, we'll, we'll do some more projects. And certainly if there's nothing going on, occasionally we'll do movie afternoon. We'll just, because we can't go anywhere. So we'll just sit and watch a movie. And then assuming that we're not on extended um, staffing, then we're finished at 1800. So our normal day is a nine hour day. All right. So that um, sounds very much um, like almost a domestic, as you said, domestic fire station somewhere in the suburbs. And yep. It's yep. the exact same. Okay. So then if we're, if we're on extended staffing, so if we're in red flag, which, uh, you know, they, they determine the conditions where high probability of fire, they may keep us on until 9 o'clock at night. Um, if, so that, that's your typical day when nothing is going on. Um, if let's, let's now say that we get a smoke report mid-afternoon, we'll get a smoke report, then we'll go out and, and staff that fire and more on that in a second. If we're already on a fire or we have project work, then typically that would be our day. Going back to the other, well, let, let's stay with that. So let's say that we now get a, a smoke report um, at some point during the afternoon. Normally it's right around lunchtime, either right before or as soon as you've ordered lunch. If we go into town, we go as a crew because we have to have to stick together. So typically you can almost guarantee it. We'll sit down in a restaurant, we'll order lunch, and then we'll get a fire call. Um, so first off, we, we'll go out, we'll we'll fly with three firefighters on board the aircraft. The aircraft is pre-flighted and ready to go uh, 24-7. It's always, it's always ready. Um, so we have a manager up front with a pilot and then two firefighters in the back. We'll fly out to the lat long. Um, typically, we have about a 100 nautical mile radius of uh, response, uh, response area. So it can take us an hour to get to a fire. If, if we know it's going to take us that long, we'll take additional fuel. Normally, we fly with enough fuel to fly for an hour and a half to two hours. So we'll fly out. Once we, once we find the smoke, we'll, um, we'll run a, a fire size up. So we'll fly around it in a circle. Typically, there, there could be, it could be anywhere from a single tree to a couple of acres at this point. Um, we'll fly around it, do a size up, report that into dispatch. Dispatch will then inform us if that fire, if it's a suppressed fire, or if it's a what they call a managed fire. We used to have what they called fire use, which is where we allow it to burn. These days they call them managed fires, which means that we're going to allow it to burn because it's going to do some good. So if it's in, a, in an area of forest with a lot of dead and down trees that really need to be burnt, we'll just let it burn. But they will have certain management points, so they don't want it to go across a certain road. But if it's a managed fire, typically we'll call in a ground fire manager. He'll come in and determine exactly what's going to be done with this fire. So back to suppression, if they determine it's it's a suppressed fire, uh, we'll find somewhere to land uh, where we can drop our two guys off. First off, we'll identify some safety zones for them. And a secondary pickup point should the first pickup or should the landing point become overrun by fire. So we'll identify that. We'll land, put the guys on the ground, 
then the manager will stay on board with me. We'll go down, find a, a place to land uh, down in the flats. We'll hook up the bucket, and then I'll start bring. I'll start dropping water on it, helping the two guys who are already on the fire. So you got the bucket. The you got the bucket on board the whole time. Oh yeah, we yeah. we fly with typically our our initial attack um, inventory that we carry on the aircraft is we have a Bambi bucket, we have a 100-foot-long line with a hook, uh, we have three firefighting tools, um, depending upon the terrain, those will vary from some of the guys like Pulaski's, some of them like shovels, so we'll have at least three tools on the aircraft, along with we'll have a chainsaw, we'll have enough fuel to run the chainsaw for four hours, uh, we have each firefighter has their own pack, Inside their pack, they have enough food and um, shelter-making supplies to last for 24 hours in the field without any support. Um, so that pretty much they, when they get out, they'll they'll take their fire pack with them along with an overnight bag. Um, and Gordy, are these national park-type forests, or is this like um, forestry for, for timber production? What's the sort of forest use? It could be both. So uh, in the U.S., the, uh, government or government land is divided up. Some of it is national parks. Uh, some of it is U.S. Forest Service. Uh, some of it is Bureau of Land Management. Um, so um, we do we do contracts with all three organizations. So typically on the Caribou Targhee, that is the national forest, which is primarily uh, they call it all Forest Service land. They say land of many uses. So some of it is is land that will ultimately be logged. Um, some of it is just pure recreational land. So, you know, runs into park, uh, national parks um, for recreation. It could be that it's just unincorporated land because we'll, we'll do outside assist too for the county. So if there's a forest which is owned by it's either private or let's say the city, we will also respond to those. And we have agreements in place whereby we can go and help out. Okay. So it, the, the land could be anything, but typically national forest land. Okay. So I took off track then. So you normally go and, and fill up a bucket at the stage and then head back towards the fire site? Yep. Hopefully there's um, – normally we try and find a water source within five miles. That way it keeps our turnaround times real quick. We're real lucky we'll find a water source within a couple of miles and we can do, you know, three or four-minute turnarounds. Often, oftentimes it's not. We have a, a longer turnaround. Most places we're looking at an average of a five or six minute turnaround. To, do to do you have around. artificial points? Like, um, would you have pre-placed concrete tanks or something like spread throughout the area for that sort of thing, or it's all natural? Yeah, there are some. Um, a lot of cities will have something. For example, Pocatello has a water treatment plant, and they they do have a storage pond that they will fill up during the summer. Uh, specifically for our use if needed. Otherwise, we have uh, what they call a pumpkin. It's a it's an inflatable pool, uh, which can vary in size from a thousand gallons all the way up to five thousand gallons. Um, on the the Pocatello crew, we also have a portable tank that we which we tow behind our chest truck, which is a plastic tank. It carries a thousand gallons, so we'll drive that out for those areas where there's no water source. They can just pull the tank off, and then we order a water tender who comes up, and he just keeps keeps that full. In other other places too. So, for example, uh, um, a couple of years back, I spent my summer in in Nevada. Nevada has virtually 
one water source every 30 or 40 miles. So in those instances, we, we, there were times we had a good 30-minute turnaround. So when we ran there, we actually had a, a water tender which traveled with us. And rather than setting up the pumpkin, because that takes, takes about 20, 30 minutes, and 2000, it was a 2,000-gallon pumpkin, so it takes a good 30 minutes to set it up, and then that 2,000 gallons is wasted. So instead of doing that, what we would do would be, if, if we only needed five or six buckets, I would just hover and balance the bucket on the ground, and then they would just get a hose out of the back of the water tender, put it over their shoulder, and just fill the bucket. Um, that's called a hover fill. Okay. It's kind of yeah, rare. Nevada's, oh, yeah. Nevada's the only place I've ever done that. Every, everywhere else in the world, they kind of, or, or in the U.S., they kind of frown upon it. But uh, Nevada, we have no choice. Otherwise, you know, the fires are going to get away from us. So. Excellent. Okay. So, I don't know, what's the, what with the normal scenario then? You put the fire out, land, pick the guys up, and then go back and, and get ready for the next next call out? Yep. Typically. So, if, if we can put it out, your average fire, let's say that it's, uh, you know, five or six trees, um, it's going to take us, uh, you know, that, that's going to take us a couple of, couple of hours to do. Um, and in reality, we don't put, everybody thinks that we put all the fires out so there's no more smoke. In reality, what we do is, because uh, we can't put it out, you actually, it's almost impossible to put a fire out unless, unless it's just a skinny tree that looks dead and really thin. What we do is we manage it. And so we'll put a line around it, and then we'll, we'll, put, we'll make sure that everything within five feet of that line is burnt so it's not going to catch fire again, and we'll just leave the middle piece burning. Um, or just smoldering. Um, if it's a if it's a huge forest fire where you end up with hundreds of thousands of acres, the fire can burn for months and months after everyone's left. But we have it contained and controlled with a line around the outside where there is no fire and the fire has no chance of escape. So typically, if it's just a you know a small fire, the the guys on the ground will put line around it. As soon as the chase truck arrives, because we have 10 firefighters, of which two are normally off on any given day. So I have three on the aircraft. I have another five to use. And so once they get there, once they've driven there, I'll land, I probably need fuel by that point. So I'll land, shut down, get fuel, fly the other five up, and then hook up the bucket again. So now we'll have seven firefighters up on the fire one manager down on the ground uh, next to the two trucks. Um, once the fire's either out or, or controlled and contained, um, I'll pick the guys up, fly them back down. We may leave a couple of guys overnight if there's, you know, if it gets to be approaching sunset, we'll, if it's not really going to go anywhere, but we still want to staff it, we'll leave two guys and pull, pull everyone else off and they'll just monitor it overnight to make sure it doesn't go anywhere. And then we'll go pick them up in the morning and then be ready. So that's oftentimes, instead of doing PT, I'm normally going out picking up guys who we've left out there from the night before. Okay, no, that's a good overview. I haven't really, hadn't really spent much time thinking about the um, that sort of day-in, day-out type things. Most of the sort of firework I picture is, you know, your, your big fire site where people get called in and you're sort of all operating, you know, multiple helicopters from the one area. So, um, yeah, I just actually had, sort of really hadn't thought through that one. No, this is, and that, that's what I really like doing. I really like doing the initial attack like this, working with a crew. You get to know everybody on the crew. It's a, it really is like a family. We go to each other's 
you know, weddings. We go, we eat together, we sleep together, not biblically, but, you know, we, we hang out together for three, four months in the summer, and you really get to know everybody's family. All the kids will come in on a Sunday, and so it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, work hard, play hard. Um, so I really enjoy that part of if in a perfect world, that is what I would do, and I, I would... I would avoid, and I still try and avoid what I call campaign fires as best I can. So the the second part of that, the part of the fire that you're used to, so let's say that we can't catch it. Uh, we put guys on the ground and it, it starts growing and there's just nothing we can do. We can't stop it. So we'll call in more, more resources. They'll come in. Typically, we may stay for a day or two or, or a day, but we'll be available to the forest for initial attack. As soon as there's another fire somewhere on the forest, we get called out to go back to do an initial attack, and then and they'll pull in additional resources. Um, so call when needed aircraft that will come in and staff this fire. And so we leave it, and we may never go back to it again until once it's all done, we may go back at the end of the season and pick up all the hose that was left out on the fire line. So that's, that's your two types of fires. The the what I'll call a campaign fire now is the large fire where you end up with um, a huge fire with a huge color base. The biggest uh, or the last campaign fire I was on was the King fire in California in September last year, September, October. That one, I believe, went to 120,000 acres. Um, we had a huge color base. We had five cranes, I think, five cranes about 10 205s and Hueys. Uh, we had a Cobra doing the, the um, infrared mapping. And then we had, I was flying a long ranger and we had an A-Star as well that we're doing uh, Helco, uh, which is basically flying up a, an aerial controller. And so we would just fly around for three hours at a time, just going from one part of the fire to the other, reporting back to the guys on the ground and controlling all the other helicopters. So on a, on a large fire, they'll have different divisions and, and this particular fire we had 2500 people on that fire of which a thousand were firefighters on the ground and it's divided up into into as many divisions as, as they need each division will have its own requirements um, and its own objectives they will then call up to uh, air attack which is and actually we're getting ahead of ourselves but it, it comes out nicely now so they'll call up to air attack he's flying above the fire typically about 5,000 feet above. He's controlling the whole fire. So they'll call up to him and say, "We our line's getting hot. We're requesting helicopter support. Air attack will then call Helco, which is us. We're flying around with a, with a helicopter coordinator. And we'll then call back to the helicopter. We'll go over. We'll look at it. We'll find a dip site. We'll find a good way in and a good way out for the guys. Then we'll, we'll call for helicopters. So we'll determine if we want a couple of cranes or if we just want to stick with some two or fives. Uh, we'll determine if we need buckets or if we need tank aircraft. Then we'll call them out. We'll typically, we'll give them a gate to enter the fire area. We'll fly down and meet them rather than them having to punch into GPS and try and find exactly where we need them to go. We just tell them to go to a gate, which is a predetermined a geographic point. Normally it's the intersection of a road and a river that's real easy for them to find. So we'll say, meet us at Gate Alpha, at, you know, let us know and we'll come pick you up. So we go down, pick them up, have them follow us in a daisy chain. Then we fly them 
to where we want them to drop, explain the objectives. We've already gone in there and flown low level and looked for wires and any other obstructions that, that they may encounter. Then we'll fly them over to the dip site, show them where the dip site is, and then typically I, I like to just leave them alone. If you if you try and over control uh, four helicopters, it gets the real mess. And so normally if I've got any more than two aircraft, I'll just tell them work out your sequencing amongst yourselves who wants to be lead and and work it out. If you've got problems, give me a call, I'll come back and help out. And and so then we just let them go to work. And so you'll sit above you'll sit above that then and yeah. just coordinate them as they go around? Yep. We'll typically just fly a couple hundred feet above them, just monitoring them, making sure. And then we're also looking at, at other aspects of that particular area. And then we'll, if let's say that we see a spot fire, then we'll, we'll say, okay, we've got a spot over here. Bravo 2, I need you to come over here. And so we'll pull him from the main group and show him where we need him to work now. So we'll just control the helicopters that we have. Meanwhile, air attack is controlling the overall fire. We're controlling just the division or the area that we've we've been assigned to work. And we're controlling the helicopters that we have under our supervision. The guys on the ground will then either talk to the helicopters they're working with, or if they have another mission for us, they'll call us direct. And how effective are the helicopters? Like, Is it kind of like the icing on the cake, or is it a, a critical part of the actual firefighting? Uh, it's pretty critical. It, it, it really depends on what stage of the fire we're at. So if a fire gets really, if it's really ripping and, you, and you've got huge flame lengths, there's nothing we can do. We may as well just, you know, go back on, and often we'll just pull everyone off and say there's nothing we can do. Once you hit 100 foot flame lengths, nothing. Other than if there's property, let's say there's property in, in the path of the fire, then what we'll do is we'll pull firefighters back to that property and we'll have them do a burnout. Then we may reinforce that burnout with retardant from one of the, so we'll pull in a crane or a couple of aircraft just to wet down that line. So the firefighters will, will start an expanding circle of fire around the property. Uh, once the main fire hits it, because fire needs three things to burn. It needs fuel, it needs oxygen, and it needs heat. So what we do is we take out the fuel by cutting down any branches. We throw it in line towards the fire. Then we set fire to it under, under control conditions. So we set a fire line. That fire is now working its way towards the main fire that's, that's coming towards us. Once the two hit, they've ran out of fuel. So the fire goes out in that particular place and just and goes around the property. So we may have, we'll have helicopters supporting a, a burnout operation on the ground just because we want the fire to go a certain way. So we'll just wet down and help out the guys on the ground. After that, once you, when they're cutting line, and, and this again is, is large fire support. So you have a fire line that, that is not yet contained, so they've got dozer around, around a particular piece of line or a particular piece of fire, and they're trying to cut down and take the fuel out. The fire may have burnt there, but it's still burning hot. So we'll come in and we'll cool the line down. So with the guys on the ground, let's say, will cut down a tree that's burning, and then we'll take out the heat from that tree, basically so they can start throwing mud on it to put out. Remember, we put out the fire within a certain distance of the fire line, depending upon how big the fire is. So we're, we're basically there to support the guys on the ground. But helicopters don't put out fires. Guys on the ground put out fires. We support them. 
Sure. And say for the guys who are actually doing the, the fire flying then and they're at the heli base, they would normally, is there accommodation there? Are they sleeping in tents? Are they, are they busting in and out from hotels or a motel somewhere nearby? Is every, every place different? On large fires, on large fires, it really depends on how accessible the fire line is. Um, if we have a huge fire, the King Fire, for example, 2,500 people, they had two shifts. They had a day shift and a night shift. All of those fire, and there was road all around it. So all of those firefighters came back to a main camp um, every night or every morning. Main camp was huge. We take over normally huge stadiums, um, and they'll just they'll have catering departments. They'll have they bring in, for example, we bring in fuel trucks to fuel all the fire trucks. We bring in catering, uh, trying to feed 2,500 people. Uh, three meals a day is a huge undertaking. So they'll they'll bring in five or six different catering companies that have 18 wheelers. All of it is set up at fire camp, um, and and so everybody comes back to sleep there. If it's in an inaccessible area or less accessible, then the guys will stay out on the fire line. Typically, not on a large fire. The smaller ones, if it's anything less than 100 people um, on a fire they'll sleep out on the fire line. Um, they'll set up an area. They'll typically do a burnout. So they'll find an open area, burn around it in a circle. So if the fire did break the line and start coming towards where you're sleeping, it, there's no fuel left because we've burnt it off already. So then you sleep in the burnt area in tents. Typically, as, as a pilot, uh, the Forest Service requires that we go back to a hotel every night. So we're, unless it's absolutely impossible to do, we will have a hotel room every night just because of the fatigue and they want it fully rested. Sometimes it's actually easier for us to sleep on out in a hella base, let's say. If there's no hotels within 20, 30 miles, we do carry a tent on, the, on our fuel truck and we'll just sleep in the tent. But typically we go, we go back to a hotel every night. All right, and a, like a, a joint aircrew briefing in the morning? Is it someone runs that? Or yep. Yeah. Yep. No, on a on a large on on a large fire, there'll be there'll be an aviation briefing. So typically, they'll have the operations briefing, normally at about five o'clock in the morning, and that's where all the fire heads and all the division uh, supervisors will will have a huge briefing. They'll then pass that information down to a main briefing to everybody. All the pilots typically show up at seven o'clock. Um, so in the summer, we'll, we'll, we do a 14-hour day if we're on a, on a campaign fire, uh, normally 7 in the morning till 9 at night. So we'll show up at 7 in the morning. We'll pre-flight the aircraft. We'll have a, a main briefing, typically around 7.45. There'll be a helibase manager. Uh, each aircraft then has our own manager, um, along with a couple of firefighters who will be our crew. And so we'll, we'll have a briefing. They'll... They'll have a big briefing board. They'll show us uh, any any updates on the fire overnight, what's happening on the fire, tell us what the priorities are. Uh, they'll give us the weather um, and any other pertinent information. Um, and then we break out into our individual aircraft groups and just talk about, talk, talk with our manager and, and see if there are any planned missions. A lot of time also for other missions that we do, our main mission other than dropping water is in support of the guys on the ground. It's flying out hoseway. So uh, oftentimes they'll have areas where they may have a stream and they want to set up a, a fire hose with a pump. So we fly them hose 
and they'll lay out uh, host systems. They can lay out sprinkler systems. Um, also, if you get in, in wilderness areas, they'll have, let's say there's buildings in the middle of a wilderness area that, that could be for a managerial retreat is one that I remember. And they'll have firefighters go in and wrap it. And so we wrap it with a, a silver tinfoil uh, product. And basically the whole building is wrapped. It takes, it takes a good couple of days to wrap a whole building. So we'll be supporting those guys. We need to fly out all the wrap, fly out all of all of their food, any supplies they need, water. Uh, also, they'll typically set up a sprinkler system. So if there's a uh, pond or a stream nearby, we'll fly out a pumpkin. They'll set the pumpkin out. They'll fill it from the stream and then have another pump, which uh, feeds a sprinkler system on top of the building. So we'll put sprinklers, the guys on the ground, we'll put sprinklers up there. So just as the fire approaches, We'll go in, there'll be one guy left, he'll turn the pump on, jump in the helicopter and we'll fly away and then we'll go back a few hours later once the fire's gone through, hopefully the building survived. Wow, so no shortage of uh, toys and, and things like that then to play with. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it's unbelievable the, the different stuff that we'll do. Other things too, so uh, another major major thing that we'll do on a fire is we'll, we'll do a, an aerial burnout. So oftentimes, there's, uh, let's say that the, the fire is in such rough terrain that you can't fight it. Anything over 20, 30 degree slope, putting firefighters on the ground, is it, it's almost a death sentence. So we try and it, it's almost impossible for them to fight that fire. So what we'll do is we'll look to see where we can put a fire break. And it may be a mile away uh, where there's a natural break, where the, where the fire comes down into the bottom of a valley, let's say. And what we'll do is we'll do a burnout from the bottom of that valley. So we'll, we'll light a fire on the bottom, hoping it's going to go up. And in order to speed that up from that natural break, we'll go in and, and light, light the fire from the air. So once they've got, let's say, 10 to 15 feet of, of black near the edge, we have two ways that we can do a burnout. One is uh, with a PSD machine, which is a plastic sphere device. So we, we put a machine inside the aircraft um, which fires out ping pong balls. Inside the ping pong ball, it has potassium permanganate, which then gets injected right before it leaves the aircraft with glycol. The, the two have an exothermic reaction uh, after about where well, we set it to about 25, 30 seconds where it will spontaneously combust. So we can set, with, by dropping these balls, we can, sit, we can determine how close or how far apart we want to drop these balls. Typically, we'll drop them about 10 feet apart. So we can do, and we'll do miles of this, just, and we'll just uh, go back and forth, um, stripping out a whole hillside just by putting fire on the ground. So they'll spontaneously combust, create a, a small fire which slowly expands in a circular motion, that will then meet the next one, which we just lit, and it will put the fire out down below. Because remember, now there's no there's no fuel left, and so it will it, you'll end up with a line of fire going up the hill, which we're just reinforcing with more fire and more fire. Okay, so it basically burns up the hill from both sides, and the main fire front yeah. just runs out of fuel. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll run it from one side, and that we can do that from a road in flat terrain or hilly to wherever we need. Uh, typically, the, the plastic spheres work well where there's ground fuel. Um, 
where there's not really too many ground fuels, those balls just hit the ground and go out if it's desert-like. So then we have a helitorch, which is, uh, and this is a lot of fun, basically it's a 50-gallon oil drum, which is suspended, uh, and it's built up, it has an, uh, a hose coming off the end with an ignition system, and we fill it basically with, it's, it's basically napalm. So it's a 50-50 mix of diesel and gasoline, and then we have a gelling agent in there called Flash 21. So we mix it up and it looks like, uh, kind of looks like washing up liquid, uh, maybe a little thicker. And so we can, we can, we have a switch on the inside of the aircraft and we suspend this below the helicopter on a, on a 50 foot cable. We have a switch inside the aircraft where we can just drop globules of fire. And so we can just, just create a fire line and, or just hit certain trees. We can go after individual trees, different areas of a fire that we just want to speed the fire up or we, or indeed if we want to slow it down a little bit. A lot of people don't comprehend that we can, we can manage a fire. So if, if I'm doing a burnout of a field, for example, uh, imagine just a, a, a regular oblong field that's maybe a mile long and half a mile wide. You've got fire in that field going from south to north. Fire is not going to be in a straight line because there'll be a wind component. So normally you end up with a pointed piece. So now you have an arrow of, of fire headed towards the north. If I was to put a line of fire across the middle of that field just with the ping pong balls, now I've created a line of fire that starts moving two ways. Once the main fire, that pointed end of the fire, hits the fire that I put down, it goes out. Now I've started a new fire that's coming. That fire, it takes, depending upon the wind, it takes a finite period of time for that fire to gather steam. So now it's going slow. So now I've taken a fast-moving fire and turned it into a slow-moving fire. So we can control the intensity. We can control the speed of a fire. We just can't really put it out. Ah, okay. And, um, yeah, <laughs> and I've always wondered about using fire because, yeah, it seems like you actually compound, compound the problem. But I guess if you've got a big fire that's uh, drying the, the fuel in front of it so that as it hits here, it's moving quicker as opposed to a small one um, where it's more controllable and slower, uh, that makes sense. But uh, there's a heap of, yeah. heap of things here to cover, and we've been going for a while. So if we can crack through some things then just so we can cover it for people. Uh, can we quickly talk about buckets yeah. and belly tanks? And just, I guess, yep. give a, a quick description of each and any pros and cons, you know, when, when you use okay. one or the other. So basically a bucket um, is, is just like it sounds. With, it, it's a bucket. It has a, a valve on the bottom or an, or an udder. So effectively the, the udder is held in place by a spring cable attached to the head. So that the udder is internal of the bucket and held, held by a locking device on, on a cable. Well, if the bucket's full of water, if I release that cable, the force of the water forces falls out through the hole through the udder. So that, that's effectively how it works. It, it's basically a magnetic switch that holds the water in so I can control the release of the water. I can't, on a standard Bambi bucket, I can't do multiple drops. I can only do a single drop with, a, with an udder system. The way that we fill it is just drop drop the bucket in the, in, into any, any water source, whether it's a, a stream, a pond. Typically on rivers, we, we 
stay away from the fast-moving water because it will drag you. Uh, so we'll normally go on a curve where there's an eddy where we can get the bucket in. The bucket has a weight on one side, so it typically falls forward. It just sinks into the water. Then as we pick it up, we're just picking up all the water in, in the bucket. Then we fly out to the fire, drop the water. We can either do a, a line drop or we can do a spot drop. So typically they'll call in, they'll call for a drop. They'll say, I want a line drop south to north on this line right here. And they'll, they'll either wave a tool and show us a start point or they'll put an X on the ground with uh, orange flagging tape. So you start here and, and run the water this way. So depending upon the size of the bucket, uh, they range from 108, well, actually they, they range from a 72-gallon bucket, which is used on a Jet Ranger, um, all the way up to a 108-gallon bucket on a Jet Ranger. All the way up, they have thousands, thousands of gallons of buckets for the Chinooks and the Cranes, if they're operating with those. Uh, typically, a Long Ranger has a 144-gallon bucket. Um, B3, the latest B3 A-Stars, can handle about a 200-gallon bucket. Uh, your Hueys, your 212s, your 205s will run anywhere from a 240 to a 350-gallon bucket. Um, an S61 is probably running anywhere from a from 650 to 1,000 gallons. And it really depends on the elevation of fire, obviously, with altitude. We can, uh, our performance decreases, so the size of the bucket decreases. So typically, most, most helicopters have two buckets. Uh, our long ranges, we run a 144 and a 108. That way, we can, we can go anywhere, pretty much any altitude from sea level up to about nine or 10,000 feet. And in the pickup, Gordy, uh, in the pickup as you're bringing it out, yeah. out of the dip, you can obviously punch off a little bit then to manage somewhat the, the weight of the bucket, or is it uh, what, what, how much control no. do you have? No. Okay. Um, unfortunately, we got no con- Once we hit the switch because it's magnetic, once, once we release that water starting to flow, it's gone. Now, there are new buckets. They have the fast bucket, which uh, actually um, – Bambi Systems recently, or SEI Systems, recently purchased the, uh, the rights to the fast bucket. Now, on a fast bucket, it has a plate in the bottom. And so you have a switch. You can, you can open the gate or close the gate. So with a, with a fast bucket, we do have control. We can release tiny bits. The problem is anything less than a 150-gallon bucket and the weight of the gate system pretty much makes it prohibitive. So anything less than about 150 gallons, we just use a standard Bambi bucket. So we have zero control. Once we release it, it's gone. Okay. And the actual release, um, I guess, technique and things like that, do you vary your speed and your height and things like that much to to get different effects on the ground? Or you generally would have a pretty standard run? No, there, there's lots of different ways to doing it, depending upon the fuel type on the ground. So if, if we have a heavy fuel, so if it's a, you know, if it's a log um, or let's say a tree stump that's burning, we need a high concentration of water in one place. So we'll do a hover drop where we'll just sit and hover and just release all 144 gallons on one, one stump. If we're in grass, we can do about 100 feet of grass with one bucket. So we'll fly anywhere up to about 45 knots and a lot lower on grass as long as we're outside of the fire line. And so we can, we can vary the drop and, and the height and speed depending upon what, what we're trying to put out or what we're trying to cool down. So we also have a, um, it's 
a it's really a net that hangs underneath it um, and, or a diffuser. And what that will do, it's kind of like a, a sack material. So it's when the water hits the sack, it kind of spreads it out, goes out through all the holes. So that will increase our fluff width. So flying along, if, if we're at 40 knots, I can get, certainly with with the uh, diffuser on the bottom, I can get about 20 feet of, of water on the ground, uh, width-wise. Uh, whereas if I do a, a spot drop or without the diffuser, I can get, it can go all the way down to five feet. So I can determine the width and the length of the line of water that I put on the ground by varying the height and speed and using a diffuser or, or no diffuser. Okay, excellent. All right, when would you switch to a, a belly tank? Obviously, that's you know more modification for the aircraft, but uh, why would you go to the, the expense and effort of, of heading to belly tanks? Belly tanks are primarily used in built-up areas. Um, certainly everywhere else, nobody, nobody likes, or in forested land, nobody needs a belly tank. So, and the reason is because the bucket is considered an external load. We cannot fly over congested areas with an external load. So, for example, in the LA Basin, the LA Fire Department, San Diego Fire Department, all of those guys have belly tanks because they're coming from built-up areas or they've got lots of homes in the area where they're trying to put out the fire. So they, they will typically use a belly tank. Anywhere in forested lands or away from the city, we don't even have tanks. And most uh, most companies don't even have tanks. It's only if you know you're going to be operating in a certain area that you're going to have tank, tanked aircraft. Okay. And any different in um, technique or, or ways you'd use them? Not really. The you know you're going to vary the the height and speed of the drop. Uh, the only other the only other difference is with a with a tank aircraft, you're restricted on where you can pick up water because you've got to be able to get the helicopter within about five feet of the water source. If you have a bucket aircraft, you can put it on the end of a 150 foot long line, uh, and you can dip out of ponds in the middle of the forest where you can actually get the aircraft down there. Or you can dip out of rivers that, you know, that where you can't bring the aircraft down, you can get the bucket there. So typically uh, in the western United States, most aircraft will fly a bucket on the end of a long line. In the eastern side of the country where it's a lot more open, they, they put the bucket on the belly. Okay. And Gordy, just at the end of the interview, how are you going for time? Are you, are you right to keep talking? I'm good. Keep going. All right, so you talked initially um, about using retardant earlier on. So can you take folks through the you know, idea of you know, those retardants, foams, and gels, and you know, how often you'd use those as a, over just water, um, and what are some of the considerations for using those? Typically, helicopters are not using any retardants, foams, or gels. That's all, all on the aircraft. So all the airplane tankers, they all use, every single one of them has a retardant. Helicopters, the only ones that really do would be the, the cranes and the S61s. And normally that is if we're, if we're putting in line in support of a burnout. So that would typically be indirect attack. So where a helicopter would be dropping is if we're trying to put in line ahead of a fire and get it contained, they will, uh, they'll go in, they'll pre-treat, for example, pre-treat a ridgeline with retardant. So that when the fire hits it, it it won't burn through it. So it will. So we could do it with water, but the water will dry out after about, typically less than an hour. The water's gone. 
whereas the retardant will remain effective for probably 24 to 48 hours. So we can pre-treat an area knowing that the fire is going to come there and we'll stop it right there. Or we can pre-treat an area and then light off the backside of it. So now we have a line with which to, to set a backfire going. Right. Um, other than that, helicopters are not really used with retardant. It, it's, it, if they are, we have to set up a retardant base for them, um, which is, which typically requires a lot of manpower. They've got to bring in all the gel or, uh, or powder and have a mobile base set up just for them. Plus, with all of the, certainly California and other places in the western side of the U.S. have lots of rules where we can't put uh, retardant anywhere near local ponds. So we, we have to pretty much be careful where we're dipping out of. If we dip out of one pond, we have to continue to dip out of there. We can't go anywhere else because of um, migration of, of species, invasive species that can get on the bucket. Typically, ah, they gotcha. don't like yep. retardant anywhere near a stream because it is somewhat toxic if it gets into the water system. So they don't want us dropping near near rivers and streams. All right, because there's a the eagle we've got here has got a system where it's a, like a box inside the aircraft, and then a, a cable runs down, or I guess a hose runs down the actual cable into the bucket. And um, you can actually mix up the uh, retardant in, in the bucket uh, from the yep. f- from the tank on the aircraft. And we have we do have one of those systems, but it's and, and years ago I think the Forest Service quit using that back in 2005. Uh, I know we have I have one sitting in my hangar that we have we don't even use. It's never we don't even take it anymore. So they, uh, we could use it if they if they ask for it, but typically they're not they're not asking for it. Okay. What about flying? Um, sorry, I was, well, the next question is going to be about flying near the uh, near the fires, as far as you know, actual conditions and things. But sorry, if you want to finish off about the uh, the retardant. Yeah, I was just going to mention that there's uh, companies out there now that are developing different types of chemicals. So there are a couple of different colors. Uh, typically, red retardant is normally goes indirect, so they typically won't drop on active flame. They'll drop just to the right of it, so when the flame hits it, it it can't penetrate. That's the other area where they will use helicopters is they'll have airplanes dropping retardant. They'll they'll be going somewhat direct right on the edge of the fire line. If If the fire does break through that line, that's when they'll call in helicopters to seal it up. Or if the airplanes miss a bit, if they if they have a gap when they're doing drops, then they'll have the helicopters fill in the little piece that was missed. And the, the dye is pretty visible from the air? Like it's, uh, yeah. you can see where the gaps are? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it shows up. Certainly in the first day, you can see it. Um, and what's funny is that the next day you can see uh, that there's times whether it's where it has broken through and so it's, the line has been useless. The next day, you can see the red line. So you'll have a fire, and then you'll have just a line of red with unburnt trees in the middle of it that was the old retardant line. And you can see it for... Actually, you can see it for a few years after, too. The other type of retardant, there's there's another one which they're developing, and I don't know that much about it, but it is more of a gel, and it's it's blue in color, and they will go direct with that. So they will drop that on flames, and it does put the flames out. 
So that, that's the one gel that I have seen put out a fire. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Well, now, <laughs> all the stuff you see of helicopters flying near the, the, the flames and the fires and the smoke and things like that, you know, it looks like hard work just on the physical flying side. So can you talk about some of the, you know, the effects you get off the fire and what it's like to actually um, fly and operate in the area? Yeah, it's uh, most of it, we, we're typically not flying right in the smoke. We're flying just off the one side of it. So if a, if a fire is is running uh the 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 smoke column will typically be going up you it can it can bend over with the wind but will typically be underneath it we will get it it will get a little smoky but we're not flying in heavy smoke um the heat depending upon if we're trying to drop right next to it we will feel the heat but we're not going to sit and hover for a bunch of time right next to right next to active flame Typically, if we're working next to active flame, we're going to be dropping at 40, 40 knots. So we're just flying right past it um, and then dropping. Uh, generally, we, we start from the, the back end of the fire. So uh, we have different parts of the fire. The heel is normally where, where the fire started or we'll have an anchor point. So typically, we're not going to go out and just drop on the front end of the fire because it's going to burn around what you put out. So normally we'll start from somewhere where we've got a known point, which is no longer burning. And then we'll go from that point and we'll build a line. So everything behind that drop is already out. So we're going from a piece that's already out to a piece that's still burning. So we can see where it's at. If the flames are really high, then we can, we can kind of drop in the turn, whereby we're already turning away from the flame and the heat when we hit the switch. Other than that, uh, a lot of times, the biggest thing that we can get is differences in the wind, because obviously pressure and temperature determine how strong the wind is. So a fire will generate its own weather system and its own wind pattern, especially when you're in the mountains. Uh, we have all the mountain winds to contend with. So a lot of times you'll you'll check the weather and it'll it may be 15 knots. Uh, certainly, when we get up into the mountainous areas, uh, that that wind speed typically we we count on it being double what it is in in flat open areas, and the the wind will follow the contours of the mountain or the side of the hillside. It will also be affected by the fire, and so that that's our biggest thing is up and down draft, especially near ridgetop, with a fire close by. Um, or coming over a blind ridge, knowing there's fire on the backside. Normally, we'll we'll just take a wide berth and and come at the fire from the cool side, going from the cool to the hot, um, and typically turning right before we we do the drop. The okay. other way that we do it is have it on if we're doing spot drops or or what I call designer drops, where there'll be a crew on the ground and they'll need. Typically, if there's a crew on the ground, it, it's not really an active fire with huge flame lengths. Anytime the flame lengths are over five feet, there's no there's nobody stood nearby it. So you're not we're not doing designer drops or spot drops at that point. If there are guys on the ground, normally because there's low flame lengths and there's not going to be that much heat. If there is, we can put we can put a hundred foot long line on there. That way, it keeps that downwash away from those guys, and it makes it a little more manageable for them. 
and a little more manageable for us too. The biggest problem is is in the mountains. It's certainly on the on the west coast or or anything really west of once you hit Colorado and and start coming up into the Rockies. In flat areas, the helicopters are not used because we can get dozers and we can get fire trucks there. So the helicopters are typically used in the mountainous terrain. So certainly, you know, coming from Montana down through Idaho into Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, all of, all those areas is all mountainous, and we're we're operating in the hills. Otherwise, they wouldn't need a helicopter. So mountain flying is 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 a big plus and really understanding the, the way that that the wind is affected by terrain and also affected by heat and fire. Excellent. Yeah. And look, I'm just looking through the other questions we had here, Cordy. Like, there's such a, a big field and, um, uh, you know, is it just on the job training? Like how do you, how do you get started? Cause there's obviously a heap more stuff here and I hear it. We could probably talk for another hour or two just to, to touch on the basics of it all. But is it just on the job training? How, how do the folks get started? It's, it, you know, it, it's tough. We, there are some burn contracts out there. So we actually had a, a burn contract out in the East coast where we were not doing the initial attack and we were just doing control burns with a helicopter. And so that was a great place where I would send guys, you know, new pilots out because they'd be under, you know, they'd have a manager on board with them the whole time. They'd never hook up a bucket and they could get to really understand how terrain affects a fire, especially if you're burning in, in the hills and where you're going to put fire on the ground to make this hill burn, but to make it not go that way. Um, the rest of it, yeah, unfortunately, is there, there's training courses out there. We have to do so many, uh, so much online training uh, with the Forest Service. They have certain modules that we do. The rest of it, um, we actually have a, a training course which we devised. Um, it's 10 hours of flying, and it's about 15 hours on the ground, and a lot of it is just sitting with an experienced fire pilot and, believe it or not, going through pictures and just, you know, pull out a photo album and say, okay, here's what we did here. And, you know, I have a huge selection of pictures taken from firefighters on the ground or taken from inside the aircraft of just fires and landing spots and, and different situations. And so just by pulling out a, a, a photo album and going through that with a new pilot, you can, he can learn the basics and, and at least try to understand what's going on. And then at least he's not completely blind when he gets out there. The other one, we we can send him out on a on a fire with with another pilot, but it's only if the if we can do it weight wise. Forest Service doesn't like it certainly in the light helicopters. In the mediums, we can do it, but the pilot already has to be checked out in the aircraft in the first place. So it's it, it's a tough one. There's it, it really comes down to sitting down with, with the guys, learning as best you can from pictures, then sending them out on an exclusive use contract really helps if you... And, and So, for example, what I did, I hired a new guy last year. I sent him out on a contract in Minnesota because they're, they're very relaxed out there. They don't have a huge fire season. None of their fires are more than three to five acres. None of them typically threaten homes. So I can send a new guy out there, talk to them. I go out there with him for the first week talk to the manager and, and basically say, this is a new guy, help him out. Don't feed him to the wolves right away. And so that way he gets to learn in a, in a more controlled environment that's, that's not high stress. Then uh, summer came and he came out and shadowed me at the Halibates for a couple of days and 
and I stayed there for another couple of weeks with him and just I'd go out to do a cycle of buckets and find out exactly where he could drop and that it wasn't high stress and then send him out. And so that's really how you do it. There's, yeah, other than that, I, I don't know how everyone else is doing it. That's certainly how we do it. Excellent. Well, other folks, if you're listening to this and, uh, yeah, you got into the fire industry another way, uh, drop us a note and let us know. Uh, all right, Gordy, I'm going to fire a couple more things here to, just to try and round out uh, information there. They've seen a, a couple of things okay. floating around about the uh, the urban high-rise aerial firefighting. So it's basically like a you know some kind of hose and you're, you're shooting out the front or out the side of the helicopter to actually put out uh, fires and high-rises. Have you seen any of that sort of stuff coming across your desk? Uh, I saw a video of it on, on Peep Rune, of all things. I don't believe it's effective. Um, I don't think that... Water is not going to put out a structure fire. If you look at a, a, just even a regular house fire, you'll have fire trucks there pouring water on it, hundreds of gallons of water for hours on end, and you're not going to put it out. Um, I think the only time that could be effective is to provide a path for people to get out, uh, and it would need to be foam. Straight water is not going to put out a structure fire. Uh, so the one that I did see was a, a foam shoot that, foam shooting device, I think it was off the side of a crane, that is really just going to provide, cool it down enough so that people can get out. You're not going to save the building. And to be honest, I, I think that pretty much it, it's a pipe dream. People have all these great ideas. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. All right. And future-wise, MBGs, uh, do you see sort of uh, not, you know, the firefighting happening at night at all, or it's just uh, not on the cards? Yeah. There's... Um, L.A. County does firefighting at night. San Diego County does it at night. Forest Service has one contract, and that's a recent contract only in the last three years. Uh, Typically, all of that firefighting is done during the day. We have to be on the ground 30 minutes after sunset. Unless it's in an urban interface environment, uh, I don't see any benefit for, uh, or I would say the risk outweighs the benefit. I, I think it's crazy to go out in a forest and try and put it out at night. It's, the risk is too high, even on NVGs. I can see it where there's in an urban interface of San Diego, Los Angeles. There's so much light down in that area that, yes, it, it can be effective there where you've got a, a fire moving up towards a community. That I can see. Anywhere else, no. It, it's too dangerous, and I certainly would have to think real hard before accepting any of that that those kind of um, tasks all right drones um we've got a few issues here in australia people have been flying just little recreational drones near fire sites and basically you know grounding the the firefighting fleet until they can clear it and things like that i don't know if you've had similar instances there in the states but are you seeing you know what, what do you think your impacts will be of drones on the fires and actually using them organ in an organized method and you know, i think it's a, a k-max at the moment floating around which has been rigged up as autonomous fire dropping and things like that are you seeing that going to affect anything in the next couple of years that is the wave of the future, and uh, funny you should mention that the Department of Interior just pushed out a, um, a, a not a, a bid, but pushed out a request for ideas for drone fighting helicopters. Certainly on the, on the lower end, we have had some drones out there, but pretty much general public, what they'll do is they'll get these small drones, less than $1,000 to buy a drone with a camera on the bottom of it, and they're going out trying to capture footage. 
which they then sell to the news stations. That is highly frowned upon at the moment, and they have had a couple of cases where they've been able to catch the person doing it, and they have been either shown the error of the ways. I believe one has been prosecuted. It just ended up in the Supreme Court the other day. I don't think that was necessarily on a fire. But in terms of uh, that side of the drones, that there's no place for the general public out there with a drone. Typically, we put up a, a flight restriction to keep out everybody uh, when we have a large fire. There'll be no, uh, a temporary flight restriction within a five-mile radius of any fire that we're working just to protect us from what we call looky-loos, which is basically a private pilot to go out there on a Sunday afternoon. Oh, big fire. Let's go see what's going on over there. So that side of it, we try to stay away from. The, the other side, there was the, the KMAX that did a couple of drops uh, for the military, I believe. Um, it will be fine on flat terrain where there's a steady wind and no, no turbulence, no terrain to deal with. It could possibly work, but in those instances, you don't need a helicopter. You can get a bulldozer on the ground. So I don't see a need for that. I think it will be a long, a long time coming before any firefighter on the ground trusts his life to a, to a drone in the air supporting him. I don't think they have the technology to be able to fly a drone or a KMAX in the mountains in the dynamic world of firefighting. The, the fire oftentimes is moving so fast that there's many times I'll be going in for the drop and someone on the ground will say, hold off and you, you go back around and, and they need it somewhere else. I don't think a drone or a, a remote-controlled helicopter can keep up with that. But one area where I do see that they could use it is bringing in supplies. So at night, typically, the, the weather's going to be, the wind calms down, so they could be doing some of those external load missions at night with, with a KMAX. The other area that I see is a remote-controlled drone doing fire mapping at night, going out and, and with uh, infrared cameras on and, and accurately mapping the perimeter of a fire and looking for hotspots. That I can see them using. I can possibly see firefighters using a, a mini drone if they don't have helicopter support. Because we do run out of helicopters over here and there's many fires that don't have a helicopter within 50 miles of them and it lets it just for guys on the ground. So I can see them using a drone for informational purposes, just gathering uh, either, I don't know, GIS data, so GPS data, um, and pictures or video of their fire perimeter. Um, but certainly the, the a water-dropping helicopter drone, I think we're still many years away from that. All right, Gordy, and you've got two little gnomes I've seen in a heap of your photos. I, know, I think one's Timothy. I, I couldn't work out the name of the other one. How did you, how'd you start that little... Uh, uh, routine or, or habit of having the uh, the little gnomes follow you around? Pretty much. You, you know, everybody, it, it's kind of like wedding pictures. If you have people or vacation pictures, people will come back, hey, come and look at my vacation pictures, and they're so incredibly boring. Whereas you put a gnome in there, and there's people following uh, the adventures of my gnomes. There's a manic depressant in Norway who follows their every move. They have, they have their own Twitter page. I, I try and make updates on Facebook, and it's more just a fun thing. Uh, when I was in Hawaii flying tours, I had uh, Stitch from the movie movie Lilo and Stitch. I had Stitch in an Elvis seat on a surfboard, and he rode on the, on the dash of my helicopter, and all the passengers loved it. They'd have their pictures taken with it, and uh, 
I gave him I had a uh, a handicapped job one time and I I gave it away. So then I got the gnome uh, Timothy is the is the gnome. He's named after Timothy Leary because he's on the trip of a lifetime. He's been flying with me now since 2005. Uh, he just rides up on the dash. He's got Velcro on his feet. So everywhere, every helicopter I fly, I just put new Velcro on and stick him up there. Uh, he was joined by Tabitha is the other one. And more than anything, it, it's just something fun. People people will, it makes your photographs more interesting. Um, people can follow the adventures of an inanimate object rather than following me, for example. Um, the other one I do is that the helicopters, certainly where I work, we named all of our helicopters. Uh, kind of in line with the World War II bombers all had a name. What it does is it, it gives your crews a sense of being and the, and the helicopter becomes uh, instead of just a tool it becomes a, a living a living object and so I, I've gotten on fires in Idaho and people will say oh is that La Fonda and who, regardless of who's flying they know the helicopter and they have a history with that helicopter and so it's, it's more just fun really if, if nothing else it, it creates uh, a break to the boredom no, it's, it's a nice little touch, and uh, we didn't cover it there, but uh, I, know, I know you took a, or you started a philosophy course and things like that. But uh, a couple of things you've got written online, and you know you do sort of blog and, and things like that. That you know you do have that that massive passion, and it really is a way of life for you. The uh, the flying, pretty much. You know, if it, I believe if you're going to do something, go go headfirst into it. Um, it's, it's certainly firefighting is a lot of fun. We work hard, we play hard. Um, I I have made it my goal that um, certainly on my crew, uh, I don't like to be identified as the pilot. We'll go out for dinner as, as a crew or we'll be in, in a briefing. I wear the same clothes as them. I wear the same Nomax green pants. I wear the same yellow shirt. I wear the same fire boots as them. Uh, the, the old generation and, and nothing against them, but the, in the past, pilots would like to be identified and they'd wear a flight suit and it's the age old story. How do you know who the pilot is? Don't worry, he'll tell you. It's, you know, it's, it's not about the ego anymore. It's about these guys on the ground fighting a fire. We really support them. Um, without them, we would not have a job. And so it's, it's about teamwork. It's about fully understanding what they're doing. It, I can best help them by understanding exactly what they're doing. So I guess just in the whole philosophy of life is, is if you're going to do something, be a member of the team. Uh, the other the other thing that that is my latest thing for this year is I just finished reading the book by uh, Colonel Chris Hatfield, who was a Canadian astronaut who spent time on the space station. He has a philosophy in his book of, of aim to be a zero. You have zeros, you have plus ones, and you have minus ones. A minus one is somebody who is on the crew and they create extra work for everyone else. A plus one is someone who um, will help you out. But if you aim to be a zero, just aim to, to do your job, don't create extra work for anyone else, and don't give them the expectation that you're going to do half of their work for them. Aim to be a zero, but try and be a plus one. That's, that's going to be my latest philosophy, and I thank Colonel Chris Hatfield for, for that. Uh, philosophy and obviously there's more of it in his book awesome yeah he's obviously got a pretty unique uh, perspective on on life in the world not many people get doing that sort of stuff 
All right, Gordy, so how can folks get in contact with you and, and I guess see some of the things you've been doing and uh, whether it's you know, questions on firefighting or, uh, or hiring you, uh, getting you for contract work, uh, where can they get hold of you? Uh, basically, I'm on uh, Peeperoon. Most uh, most pilots know, or helicopter pilots know know about Peeperoon. I don't hide myself. I'm known as Gordy on there. I'm pretty easy to find. I do have a Facebook account. The gnomes have their own uh, Google Plus page. It's the Adventures of Timothy and Tabitha. Um, if you look hard enough, you'll find them. There's also a, a website put out. It's, he's a pilot. He flies a crane now for Ericsson. Um, basically, it's Chicken Wings Comics and chickenwingscomics.com. He has his own website. He has his own comic strip, which is actually syndicated worldwide. You may have seen it. If you go to their website, they have a forum on there, and we set up a firefighter area. And so you'll be able to see the adventures of Timothy and Tabitha in there um, or the adventures of LaFonda, which is uh, one of my helicopters. Uh, all of them have names. Um, I'm known as G-Man on there, so that's how you can get a hold of me. If anyone wants to email me direct, it's coptergman at gmail.com. Pretty much that's, that's the easy way. It's, uh, I'm not that difficult to find in the world. If you want to have firefighting services, obviously we do it primarily for government use. And we're primarily in the U.S., although we are looking at, at other countries right now. Um, I'm currently the director of operations for Reading Air Service up in Northern California. So I can be contacted there, Gordy at readingairservice.com. And that's our website, just readingairservice.com. That's fantastic. I might get some of those links off you too, and I'll include those in the uh, the blog post and the show notes for this episode. So, Gordy, look, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, it just really feels like we're scratching the surface about, um, you know, how much there is to know about uh, firefighting and, and the things that go into it. So, look, thank you for giving us an insight into your career and your operations there. You're welcome. I'm glad to do it. And if anyone has questions, feel, feel free to, to contact me. I, I typically get, uh, during the summer, I typically get normally one email a week or someone on people and just private messaging me, asking me for advice as, as to how to break into it. It isn't the easiest area in, in helicopter operations to break into, but there are a couple of things that you can do early on to kind of steer your career in that direction. And I'm happy to help and provide links to, to anyone who needs them. Awesome. Thanks, Gordy. You're welcome. Thank you. And folks, I stopped the recording here and was chatting with Gordy afterwards. And he started to talk about a really important point. So I managed to hit record again and captured the last part of it. So I'm just going to quickly add that to this interview. I love working on fires. We're really a firefighter first and a pilot second. So the flying almost has to be second nature. Certainly my head is outside 90% of the time. All of our gauges are reproduced in the door or on the floor of the aircraft. So when we're looking out, I don't have to pull my head inside and look at the instrument panel all the time to see what's going on with the aircraft. But the aircraft is really secondary. And I guess I did touch on it a bit that, you know, I'm a firefighter and I'm part of the crew. It just so happens that my role within the crew is in the front right seat versus anywhere else. So, so yeah, that's, that's the biggest thing right there. A massive thank you to Gordy again. It's a, a real privilege to talk to people who have spent you know, so much of their lives dedicated to operating helicopters and for them to you know, have a, the time out of their, their schedule to, to share that experience with the rest of us. So I hope you really enjoyed that and learned some new things. 
That was Gordy Cox from readingairservice.com if you want to follow him up there. And please do leave a, a message on the episode show notes for uh, episode 20 at rotarywingshow.com if you have a, a firefighting tip or a question. If you can share the interview on social media with your helicopter compadres, that's always appreciated. Quick marketing tip from today's sponsors, trainmorepilots.com. A tool that you should really check out is Sniply. So snip, S-N-I-P dot L-Y is the website for the tool. And how it works is, you know, with your social media content, uh, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, you quite you know, regularly going to be sharing a link to an interesting article. So it could be an article about flying or a cartoon or a, a magazine article, you know, just in your normal posting. And what it tends to do is it takes people away from your website or from your social media channel for them to actually go and look at that article, that link that you've posted. What Snipply does is adds a banner at the bottom of the page where you can include some text and a call to action button of your own on the third party website. So example might make that clearer. If you were a flying school and wanted to link to an episode of the Rotary Wing show, you could use the Snipply tool and when people clicked on your link, uh, when they loaded the Rotary Wing show website, they would actually see a thin banner down the bottom of the, the site and it actually have information about your company and your website and a link to take them back to your website when they finish looking at the Rotary Wing Show website. And you can do exactly the same when you're linking out to the HIA website or Heli Expo website or a one of the large sort of helicopter magazine articles. So it's a great way of sharing interesting information with your online followers, but still maintaining that branding and generating that web traffic back to your own website at the same time. So a cool little tool, and check that out. It's called Sniply. So Snip, S-N-I-P dot L-Y. That's your marketing tip from today for our sponsors, trainmodpilots.com. Okay, take us out this week. We have listener Randy Addington from Richmond, Virginia. So thanks, Randy, for the message coming through. And take care, folks. I'll chat to you again in the next episode. Fly safe. Hey, Mick. Randy Addington here. I'm a UH-60 Blackhawk pilot here in America. Just wanted to tell you how much I really enjoy your show and uh, keep up the good work. Been looking forward to every episode.